Good evening, everybody. Um, it's my pleasure to chair this event about a passionate affair uh, in which I'm also a bit involved, being German. That's why my role is here to play the Rottweiler, watching over the rules and the timing. My name is Walter Czerkler. I'm a political economist at the European Institute. And we celebrate the launch of this book, uh, as you know, and that we, you will be later be able to uh, buy at a discount for £25 outside. I'm sure the authors would be uh, happy to sign it. And we have them here, and they manage to do something which I think academics are normally hard-pressed to do, that three people write a book together that is written like in one, you know, like written by one person. And that's quite remarkable given how different in the stage of their career and in their personalities they are. So we have to my immediate left, Kira Gasu Kanai, your last name always, that's it, Katsuyani, um, who is a PhD student with us, I'm proud to say. Then we have Claudia Sternberg there, who is a senior research fellow at UCL, the European Institute there. And then finally, Calypso Nicolaides, who is a professor of politics at Oxford University. And they all three have been at Oxford, so that's where the book came, uh, came to be, be born and devised. As commentators we have tonight, I know this is a, a kind of funny thing that there are two Englishmen who will uh, report or we will comment on this, uh, although one of them Kevin Featherstone, the head of the European Institute, is a kind of honorary Greek, really, um, because he's the head of the Hellenic Observatory. And then to my immediate right is uh, Jonathan White, who is a professor of politics at the European Institute. And they will tell us, calm down, dear, and you know, don't get so worked up in your relationship. Before, so the, the, the format of the, the evening will be that Claudia and Kira give an introduction, a summary uh, of the whole thing in about 15 minutes. Then we have our two comments, 10 minutes each. And then Calypso will briefly respond to this, and then we are open up to Q&A. Uh, I would like to welcome our panel for this evening. So Kira and Claudia, if you would like to start. Um, it's my task tonight um, to tell you what the book is about. And um, just before that, I would like to thank my lovely co-authors. It's been a wonderful journey with you um, to write this book um, and a real privilege. Um, so the book is about two things. Um, first, it's a story about the Euro crisis and how we as Europeans live together in our European Union. And we um, approach this through the lens of one of the most explosive and highly charged binational relationships of this crisis, that between Greeks and Germans. And more specifically, um, we trace the war of images and stories and arguments as it was raging in newspapers and magazines, in cartoons, title pages, and covers. And you see some of our finest examples on this slide. What we saw was a really um, tumultuous affair, um, full of hurt and offense, of mutual misunderstandings and misrepresentations. But also, as we argue, um, there were some seeds sown um, for recovering and for building something that unites us as Greeks and Europeans, as well as, as Europeans. Um, more specifically, our story is one about how Greeks and Germans 
um, imagined each other over the course of the crisis and how in the process they reimagined themselves and their own collectives. Um, and then on a, on a third level, we look at how this transformed the picture of Europe that emerged from this. And the other thing that the book is about is mutual recognition. And um, also what this crisis did to the European Union that we as Europeans have been building over the past 60 years, which as you know is a truly new and unique um, kind of political animal um, that is something in between a loose association of states or um, an alliance of separate democracies on the one hand and on the other, side, on the other hand a, a federal state writ large um, with a supranational people that supersedes old national peoples. Um, what we have in the European Union today is really a third way, um, a union of European demoi in the plural, a democracy where the European peoples and individual citizens rule together. They're, that is to say they're separate um, but still work together. And um, a constitutive fe feature of this new political animal, we argue, is the aspiration around which this was built, which is the aspiration to mutual recognition. Um, what is mutual recognition? When we decided to write a book about this, little did we know that it would be, at least for a while, on everyone's lips uh, with Mrs. May and branding it as a secret weapon for achieving both market access and regulatory sovereignty. Um, beyond the daily uh, politics of Brexit negotiations, um, mutual recognition has a tradition in scholarship and it means many things to many scholars. Um, from the principle of regular cooperation in the single market that, that the Prime Minister um, took it uh, out of context from um, over a diplomatic norm in international relations and, and really the founding pillar of international law to a philosophical concept. Um, and from, this, um, from these political theories of recognition we borrow eclectically and quite liberally. Um, these theories go back to the Hegelian notion um, that it is through social feedback and um, through being recognized by others that we recognize ourselves and develop our own identities. So we see ourselves partly in the gaze of others. Um, and to recognize someone to speak with Paul Ricoeur, the French philosopher, um, means seeing them in an epistemic sense, that is identifying them as someone and not someone else but also it means acknowledging them and granting them respect and human dignity. And this is how mutual recognition can transform an unequal relationship. Now in the book we explore how this mutual recognition plays out in the relationships between different peoples. Um, so we, we do contribute to the kind of growing debate on how the concept can be extended from relations between individuals and groups within a society to international or rather trans and supranational relations. But um, if our book is grounded in theory, it is really fundamentally an empirical study. It's an empirical analysis of um, these stories and arguments um, that we look at. And, and our aim in this is to shine a light on the Greco-German affair and really the European commission, uh, condition of us living together in Europe today. So mutual recognition, as we see it, is really a state of mind or an ethos, and um, it, in essence, has to do with difference and how we deal with difference. It involves accepting to live with difference and to interact with one another in all our divergencies without either trying to, be, uh, trying to make the other side be like ourselves, um, but also um, 
not simply stopping at the fact that we're different and withdrawing into separate spaces. So it's really about engaging with each other. Um, also, um, we show in the book, um, mutual recognition is essentially about living with conflict. Um, for at the same time as all our aspirations um, to mutual recognition in, in this European um, project, um, the propensity for denying each other um, recognition um, and, and this, these denials are the eternal source of social conflict, um, this propensity remains imprinted in our DNA as Europeans as well as, as human beings. So really, the tension between promises and denials of mutual recognition is built into the European project. And the Eurozone crisis has cast a merciless light on this tension, um, seemingly in reversing any progress made so far in this direction. Is there room for hope? We say yes. But what we found is that Greek and German identities, as well as interests, um, in all their binges of othering and stereotyping, emerged really as fundamentally intertwined and as mutually engaged with each other. Um, in the process, um, and not least because the crisis forced us to live out these conflicts, um, we as Greeks and Germans reshaped not only the image of the other, but also of ourselves. And out of this, we argue, there did evolve some kind of common collective, um, which, uh, um, forms of which we found were a Europe of some solidarity or a Europe of um, fates that are interconnected for good. Right. Yes. Very good. Thank you, Claudia. Uh, thank you to all of you for being here, and thank you to um, LSE for hosting us. Um, so my task tonight is to tell you a few more words about the empirical chapters of the book, and hopefully to give you a sense of the themes that we cover in the book, especially when it comes to the empirical chapters. So the, the hurtful kind of images that you see in the slide that we have, um, that, that we are currently displaying, are kind of the starting point of, of our exploration. And I th I've been asked here to translate uh, this image that's at the bottom, uh, the Greek cartoon. So that's from a, the Greek newspaper, Avgi, and it features the German finance minister saying quite extreme things. So the title is, the negotiation has begun. And Schäuble is saying, we insist on making soap from your skin. We are discussing about making fertilizer from your ashes. So quite extreme World War II references. So this, this, this kind of imagery and also associated stereotypical tropes, such as those about the Greeks who swindled their way into the Eurozone, a very typical phrase that we found in German discourses, or that about the Germans who want to impose a Fourth Reich in Athens. These kinds of things were what motivated our study. Um, but fortunately, what we found is that the world is more complicated, and the narratives that we found in our primary sources were far more varied. And one of the aims in the book for us was to actually reflect this variety. So what we have done in the empirical chapters of the book was to interweave the different narratives that we found in our Greek and German materials around a number of thematic patterns and to point out the commonalities and the differences between the Greek and German discursive strands as well as commenting on the context in which those different narratives had a resonance. All right, so in this context, the first, the first kind of empirical chapter that we have, which is chapter two in the book, focuses on, on Greco-German representations of the other, as well as the feedback effect that those representations had on the self. Um, so we begin this chapter uh, with the theme of Greek squanders and German misers, 
uh, where we discuss the, stereoty the stereotypical trope of the spendthrift Greek, but also the widespread sympathy with the suffering of ordinary Greek people that we encountered in the German media, as well as the biting self-criticism of Greeks for their habits during the pre-crisis years. In fact, Greeks came to call this pre-crisis years the age of the lobster pasta, which is a term that connotes a time of reckless spending and effortlessly acquired unsustainable prosperity. Then the next section of the chapter moves on to the moral, sometimes moralizing, and to an extent shared discourses on the rule of law and solidarity. And we then discuss how depictions of the other can sometimes serve as projection screens for our own fears, particularly with reference to the German tabloids phrase, bankruptcy Greeks. Flight uh, Griechen. It's a terrible accent, but all right. <laughs> we continue then with the, with the discussion of the role of appeals to history in the Greek and German public debates. And I'd like to say a few more things about this section. So here we start with the story of how the worst war of words that we discovered in, a, in our material, in fact, started and was full of references to the other nation's past. This was an episode that occurred between December 2009 and March 2010, and it was in the context of this episode that the focus cover page that we showed you at the start was actually published with a slandered Venus statue. So in this episode, German journalists often or sometimes evoked Greece's glorious past to say something or to denigrate Greece's present decline, while Greek journalists and, and politicians, I have to say, alluded to Germany's inglorious past, especially the war, to criticize the country's present policies, for instance, by linking the issue of debt relief to Germany's war reparations. So the politics of memory grounded feelings of entitlement on both sides, but they also sparked moments of renegotiation of the way we see our past. And I have an example on the slide, um, which is a quote from a Greek newspaper, where this, the, the journalist writes, um, suddenly we have all become anti-Nazi, but it is one thing to remember the Nazis when they no longer exist, and it's another to fight them when they are in front of you. It is one thing to remember those who fought the Nazis, and another to forget that it was not the Nazis who, who later sent those who fought to the execution squad. So the latter phrase is a reference to the Greek Civil War, which complicates the black and white picture of virtuous Greek resistance against foreign oppression. The unfortunate thing that we notice is that these more complex or self-critical commentaries um, don't usually get to tend to get translated in the other countries' press, with the result of what you see at the top of the slide, which is a tendency to think that the other's debate is monopolized by the, the, hurt, the hurtful imagery, which is not really the case, in fact. In any case, we end this chapter with the topic of power and resistance, directly following from the preceding conversation, and we discussed the Greek imagery of German despots and their Greek collaborators, which was quite pervasive, as well as German soul-searching uh, with regard to Germany's newfound role as the reluctant hegemon of Europe. Overall, what we try to do in this chapter is to reconstruct the kaleidoscope of views about the five thematic patterns that I've just mentioned, um, where it is often hard to tell whether it's actually a Greek or a German speaking. But unfortunately, this complexity, as I said, is often lost in translation. So then the second, what the, the second and final empirical chapter of the book does um, is to reflect on how those mutual depictions between Greeks and Germans affect Greeks and Germans' views about the European Union. And this chapter is structured around three themes. The first one has to do with the EU's promise of prosperity. Um, 
and in that context, we ask to what extent has this promise actually turned into a threat, a threat to prosperity to both peoples. Um, among other things, we note in this section that in Germany there was actually quite a lot of discussion about possible alternative future paths for the EU in terms of economic policy specifically. On the other hand, such discussion was actually far more limited in Greece, and one of the reasons for that was that the Greek debate was quite polarized between those who viewed European tutelage as, at least in part, something like an opportunity to adopt much-needed much structural reforms, and those who wanted to hear absolutely nothing of the memoranda because they viewed them as lying at the root of Greece's economic malaise. In the second section, we focus on discussions about how Europe may have become renationalized during the crisis, paradoxically at the same time as the reasons for sticking together in this community of faith, of faith sorry, and I quote, may have multiplied during the crisis. And then finally, we end the chapter by discussing visions of the EU as a locus of competent governance, and particularly, <laughs> well, and, and questioning them as well. <laughs> And then in the, in the case of Greece, we, we focus on a particular understanding of the country's membership, not only in the EU, but also specifically in the Eurozone, as an anchor of political and economic modernity. And it is in this context that the cartoon that I'm, we're showing in this slide should be interpreted. And in fact, we note that this element of the Greek debate was often overlooked by international commentators analyzing the costs and benefits of a possible Brexit. So overall, we see the interweaving webs of stories about Europe that we tell in these pages, hopefully as seeds for the creation of a pan-European discursive space, as well as for the recovery of the promise of mutual recognition, which, as Claudia eloquently explained, uh, we regard as the pillar of democracy, which is this particular brand of democracy that we think we should, if, if we don't have it, at least we should aspire to have in the European Union. Thank you very much. That was a nice, succinct uh, discussion of the, the book. And now I would like to invite our commentators. Do you have a preference who goes first? Then we do it according to alphabet. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, let me take the microphone. First of all, let me say that uh, this was a book which was a pleasure to read. I read it appropriately on the plane last Friday coming back from Berlin. Um, and. Um, I, I strongly recommend it. It's also, of course, a very intelligent uh, mapping of different meanings, images of the other side. And, of course, it's got a great lineup in terms of mix of uh, authors uh, as well. So my difficulty now is to uh, think of something with which I disagree, and that is difficult. But I'm here, so let me try. Essentially, of course, it's a book about conflicting cultures, and uh, essentially it's looking at the collective psyche of the two societies and discussing the different parts. It struck me that much of the narrative is rather like the authors as marriage guidance counselors. <laughs> it's telling the other side there are really quite legitimate uh, interests and rights that are being offended and, and contravened. But I guess in this uh, really rather dark account of uh, two lovers who've fallen out, uh, I guess uh, you could hardly have chosen two European, sorry, two European nations, not neighbors, 
with such a soul-searching angst about them when it comes to their European uh, participation. It struck me that this was a kind of two souls of Faust uh, aspects of uh, looking at how both nations view themselves uh, within the European uh, domain. Uh, I think Kira has just mentioned about the the German self-reflection, and I'm going to try to pronounce it as well, the Wegengenheitsbewalt Egon, the struggle to overcome the dark past uh, of Germany's uh, history. But we could also counterpose that with Greece's own self-torture about its position in Europe uh, as well, this classical past and the contemporary reality, the glories and the current uh, limitations. So uh, we could hardly have found two more wretched souls uh, to look at in terms of this uh, particular drama. And of course, each side uses the other's angst and soul searching as a means of uh, attack. We've seen some of the images on our screens. The German uh, point about two Greeces is highly redolent of um, a long-term modern Greek image. Uh, there's a famous book of uh, Western travelers in Greece, uh, um, Fair Greece, Sad Relic. That is the glories of uh, the uh, Greek past, but the disappointment of looking at uh, contemporary uh, Greece. Now, that said, I've, I've uh, suggested that this is a study of two wronged lovers or whatever. Now, the book is making a claim with which I would uh, have some hesitation. Uh, it's talking about uh, Greece and Germany uh, were essentially warring lovers with a mix of repressed esteem and repulsion, quote, envy and recrimination in their attitudes towards the other. Uh, I think that might claim too much in the sense, did their anger really hide a mutual attraction? But in any event, of course, it's almost impossible to confirm uh, how far that was. Uh, and I guess that opens up a bigger ontological issue here. The book claims not to explain, but to explore. We're exploring the topography of images and meanings of the other side, not to explain. Well, of course, it's not so easy to uh, challenge a kind of psychiatric uh, account of repressed emotions and hidden memories. Uh, but to me, the book does actually seek to explain uh, perhaps it uh, prefers not to commit in that fashion, but it does seek to explain how both sides have com come to see the other. Uh, and I think there's a, a general uh, issue that could be starkly posed. Is it long-term cultural frames or current economic strength that matters the most in terms of creating the images and the meanings? Granted, cultural perspectives uh, have much relevance. Uh, for Greece, uh, Merkel and Schäuble were essentially the agents of a Europe that Greece has for a very long time othered. In the Greek context, Europe has been othered throughout modern Greek history. 
and Schäuble and Merkel were simply the agents of that kind of othering. Uh, Europe had created a cleavage of, on the one hand, modernity and aspiration, as opposed to tradition and isolation in Greece, way back to the 19th century, the modern Greek states. Indeed, you could look even back to Aristotle as to how uh, Greeks have othered Europe in this uh, sense. But precisely because Europe was no longer a frame of modernization, Europe was now a harsh, impositional, unjust, unfair uh, agent that was uh, ignorant of Greece's uh, conditions. And this clearly rekindled a deep cultural instinct in the Greek society uh, towards a sense of victimhood. Uh, for long, throughout modern Greek history, the perfidiousness of great powers had damaged Greece from the very start. Uh, now we have in the crisis, German harshness became an excuse for ignoring Greece's own culpability. As it were, victimhood battled against self-responsibility for ownership of the bailout agenda. And it struck me that there's, uh, in reading the book, something of an irony uh, here. When we think of the Greek system, we think of Greece's debts to German jurisprudence and German, uh, the German court system based so much on legal rules and principles of deduction. And we think of the state administration uh, in Greece, which is highly, excessively rules and rule orientated, etc. Yet in response to the debt crisis, Greece was asking uh, Europe asking Germany for the kind of pragmatic problem-solving orientation which its own state institutions eschew on a daily, daily basis. So there's something of a kind of duality of thinking there, an irony. But I think this leads to a normative aspect which may be underplayed in the book as well. And that is the status and meaning of the term liberal in both societies. It's obvious, of course, in the German context, the, the effects of order liberalism go, govern so much of German thinking about the crisis. Excuse me, but also similarly, in the Greek context, the terms liberal, order liberal, neoliberal, have been uh, regularly conflated uh, used interchangeably, used as the terms of the most severe uh, condemnation. Uh, all reforms have been dismissed as being neoliberal or whatever it might be. Uh, and of course, um, this tends to uh, give a stigma uh, to the reform uh, agenda. I should say that there is also a contrast in the German, uh, on the German side. Uh, Wolfgang Schäuble came to the LC about a year ago or 18 months ago and uh, was asked about order liberalism as a solution to the Euro crisis and what evidence would he need to persuade him that this, the uh, order liberal austerity program 
was not working. And the response was classic. It was to say that uh, the order liberal frame is not a matter of empirical testing. It's not a question of being tested against the evidence. These are enduring rules which have a legitimacy independent of the economic cycle. So in that sense, uh, as it were, this is, uh, this is policy making by metaphor, as it were, or certainly it's policy making by some kind of holy devotion uh, to a set of principles which uh, can't be contradicted by uh, evidence. But in the uh, Quick case, liberal, um, it's in the context in which, of course, in, the, in Greek society, there's very little constituency for supporting liberal solutions. So when, when reforms are attacked as being liberal, neoliberal, auto-liberal, there's a kind of whiff, smelly uh, whiff about the use of the terminology, uh, a whiff which is rather like the use of the word profit in Greece as well. Uh, there's a kind of negative stigma uh, to these uh, things. And of course, uh, little, little constituency for Greece wishing to have a liberal state via the rest of society. So many of the social forces wish to have their own rents from the, uh, from the Greek uh, state. So I think on the, on the aspect of liberal, liberalism, neoliberalism, auto-liberalism, there's a kind of political economy here of irreconcilable uh, frames. And that leads us to really consider um, something perhaps the book doesn't uh, discuss, whether we have irreconcilable uh, frames of reference and beneath these emotions, whether the Eurozone itself is uh, is structured uh, to create iniquities, conflicts, confrontation. In other words, it might have been useful if the book was to consider whether the periphery can ever live with the core in the Eurozone and uh, whether these feelings stem from underlying economic uh, conditions. And in that sense, it would be to see the feelings, the images, the meanings attached, which are portrayed so well in the book, as being symptoms of an underlying cause, uh, rather than simply saying how these uh, images uh, hurt each other. I could say, of course, images also impact on behavior. Uh, we might mention the fact that it's uh, German firms above all uh, that have been the prime foreign source of bribes uh, in a number of uh, public contracts, whether it's pharmaceuticals, defense, infrastructure projects, etc. Et so a list of German companies have actually treated Greece according to the image that they themselves despise and reject. A couple of, two points, if I may, uh, very briefly. Um, as I say, I think the envy for the other side was rather uh, limited. But also, perhaps, the actual repeated contact during the crisis actually strengthened the mutual animosity. Uh, so, 
even if Germany was the imperial power, uh, Germany never made the decisive choice of which prime minister in Athens it actually wanted, which prime minister it could do business with uh, the most, as it were. It never took the decisive step that might have better delivered the rescue strategy. It never empowered domestic politicians in, in a kind of pro-reform uh, coalition. And of course, successive Greek governments misread Berlin. Merkel and Schäuble were a kind of good cop, bad cop combination, uh, but regularly Athens misread the signals from uh, Berlin. And uh, I think it may have some local resonance. Uh, Yanis Varoufakis and Alexis Tsipras regularly said, Germany will back down. We will be able to get a better deal. I think there are connotations here of Boris Johnson saying that Brexit will be the easiest deal to negotiate because Germany will uh, concede. So there's clearly a, a lesson here of uh, the reluctant hegemon causing problems for its neighbors not only because it's a hegemon, but because of it, it's reluctant as well. It's not playing the role, not making the decisions. If I could uh, finish perhaps by picking up on the point about mutual recognition. Um, there's a claim that mutual recognition is the solution to what it calls the crisis of the soul in the European body politic. Europe has no single demos, therefore we need demi, we need lots of them. Uh, and we need to recognize the legitimate interests of, of both. And mutual recognition can sustain the deep cooperation that the EU project uh, rests on. Well, of course, uh, again, we can accept that, but how could we argue against such a, a proposition? We're being lulled towards better behavior, as it were. Uh, but it's not easy to determine how far this mutual recognition could sustain a stronger European Union. Uh, should uh, better cultural understanding be the prime focus of our strategy, uh, or does harmony come from uh, shared economic interests? So, few can doubt the importance of narratives and it's important to map the contours of the images and meanings both sides have of each other. And the book does that superbly. That's exploration. Perhaps volume two might stretch towards more of the explanation, uh, more in terms of uh, trying to explain the derivation of narratives, narratives as power. There's a Gramscian perspective to be had here. There's a political economy perspective about how the core and the periphery can live together, whatever the images we have of each other. So I suppose um, the cultural mapping is a superb job. The next uh, discussion perhaps should be where these images actually come from and whether uh, the two sides could live in this kind of Eurozone. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kevin. Thank you. Well, thank you um, for having me and thank you for, for the book. I enjoyed it very much. Uh, just as Kevin has said, it's a very enjoyable read. It's a very readable read. Um, 
I guess I took the, the core of the argument to be something like this, that we're all familiar with caricatures of lazy Greeks and austere Germans uh, and so on. Uh, but to assume that this is the dominant way in which Greeks and Germans see each other would itself be a caricature. In other words, it's a kind of a second-order caricature that we can easily slip into if we're not careful, that we need to perhaps resist the fascination with public discourse at its worst. And I think maybe there's a kind of uh, a democratic message that's in this book, which is quite an interesting one. In an age of populism, or perhaps we might say also in an age of anti-populism, there's a tendency perhaps to project crude thinking onto the masses and for any individual to position themselves as someone who can look beyond stereotypes. And I think one of the messages of this book and one of its political messages is perhaps that we should acknowledge this capacity to look beyond stereotypes in others, not just in ourselves. Okay, let me also try and uh, develop some critical remarks. I guess one thing... Um, that I started thinking about as I read this, uh, this book where stereotypes are very much to the, to the fore is what is exactly the political problem with stereotypes about other nations? What is the very worst thing about stereotypes as these are deployed in public debates? Now, it seems to me there's two views here, and the book follows one, and I'm going to suggest another view. But the perhaps the the one to start with would be that the very worst thing about stereotypes, the, the reason that we might recoil from stereotypes is something to do with their content, their simplifications that distort the, the world's diversity, lazy Greeks, or again, up one level, the assumption that Germans see Greeks as lazy. These are stereotypes, they're vulgar generalizations, we might say they're problematic because they're untrue or because they're offensive or they're divisive to the extent that some people end up believing them or believe that other people believe them. Now, it seems to me that this is broadly the perspective that the book is taking, that stereotypes are problematic essentially in the last in instance because of the content and the effects of that content on uh, how people think and I think other people think. And one of the things the book tries to show, I think, is that the inadequacy of stereotypes as perspectives on the other leads to a process, a process of contestation. This is one of the optimistic messages of the book, that bad stereotypes prompt efforts to contest them, to protest against the kind of unfair generalizations and exaggerations they give rise to. That's a quotation from the book. And from this process of contestation can arise greater understanding Mutual recognition, to repeat that concept. Good. But it seems to me that there's another way of thinking about what's the very worst thing about stereotypes, which is not really to do with their content at all or the risk that people end up believing the content of stereotypes. They slip into a certain kind of lazy thinking. After all, stereotypes are often voiced in jokey, ironic tones, as though the speaker acknowledges that no one takes them seriously. It's just a bit of fun that no one really believes in stereotypes. Well, if that's the case, then one might feel that perhaps the, the greatest worry that one can have about stereotypes in politics is that they're distractions. In other words, it's not what they're about. It's not the content. It's the fact that they distract from other things. They fill the airwaves and consume public attention, or at least they, they might 
consume public attention. They might marginalize other things more worthy of attention, a critical analysis of the structural causes of problems, for example. And so even if unserious on their own terms, they crowd out things that are serious. Perhaps even the more ridiculous they are, the more distracting they are. So, two views then on stereotypes. One that says that what the worst thing about stereotypes, the reason why we worry about them infiltrating public discourse, is because they are crude, vulgar generalizations, and so on, versus a view that says no one takes them seriously as such. The problem is not that they are crude generalizations. The problem is that they distract people from other kinds of things. They fill a space. They displace. I think this distinction matters because if one goes down the second route, if one says that the major problem with stereotypes is that they are distractions, then contesting the content of stereotypes is perhaps not quite the thing. It's not perhaps the, the most important response that one might give to it. Indeed, contesting stereotypes arguably reproduces the very same problem. It perpetuates a focus on identity, sets people off on a distracting wild goose chase. One of the examples in the book is one that you may be familiar with. Um, Joan Dysabloom, one cannot spend all the money on drinks and women and then ask for help. In other words, let's say a northern European making some type of uh, uh, stereotypical criticism of southern Europeans, including, including Greeks. And of course, it produces a lot of fury. You can't talk about Greeks, southern Europeans, like that, calls for him to resign, and so on. And of course, that's right. How, how could that not be right? How could one not condemn something of that kind? You can't just let it go by, but at the same time, addressing it focuses attention on the cultural framing. It reproduces the cultural framing. Contesting this type of stereotype ends up in a kind of tit-for-tat exchange of further cultural, culturally framed discussions. It sets off a cycle, and I think it's a cycle that's familiar for many contexts of culture in politics, that the effort to criticize the invocation of, politics, of culture in politics often ends up reproducing some of the same problems uh, as that which it criticizes. It would be bad enough, perhaps, if we treat such stereotypical remarks as borners of laziness or thoughtlessness. But, of course, any thoughtful politician will be well aware of the potential for cycles of the kind that I'm talking about. And so can act strategically to engineer this effect of culturally framed politics, claim, counterclaim, and as I suggest, deflecting attention from other kinds of narrative, other types of uh, way in which public discourse might play out. And of course, journalists, no less than politicians, in the dying mainstream media, and of course, this is a book which is focused on the mainstream media, these types of uh, framings, one could probably say, are clickbait. In other words, these types of way of framing political problems as problems of the relations between national groups uh, are a way of setting off a lot of clicks, a lot of comments under the margin. We've got the, the focus uh, picture behind us. I mean, this is a publication which I think is uh, losing a large number of readers over recent years. I think it has a new editorial team in 2009, uh, and this type of uh, image would perhaps be one person's way of arresting uh, a decline of circulation and producing 
the type of public discourse that is intended to consume people, to provoke a reaction. The book says somewhere, if many journalists or politicians chose to resort to offensive and stereotypical depictions of the other during the crisis, this was not for lack of alternative discursive options. Well, absolutely, but what if such moves are at least in part intended to distract? What if offensiveness and stereotypicality are the effects that at least some speakers are seeking, whether they are politicians, whether they are journalists, or any other number of powerful actors. If that were the case, then contesting stereotypes is arguably playing exactly the game that those who first deployed them want to be played. Now, there's a game metaphor that's going on in the book. The book endorses a metaphor of the game, introduces the players as Greeks versus Germans, and quite often talks about sides, both sides. And generally, I think the authors are quite willing to accept nations as categories of analysis as well as categories of practice. We hear about what Greeks say, what Germans say. We are invited to treat them as the contending figures in a game. And I think it is a game, perhaps, but not perhaps a game uh, articulated in precisely those terms. One could equally well see it as a game that's played on the general public at large, a European public, or at least an aggregate of national publics. It's not a game between sides, but a game which is played on others by who might otherwise have opportunities for more genuinely critical debate. Um, now, of course, uh, our speakers have already mentioned some of the theoretical reasons why one might want to accept the normative significance of categories to do with a nation state and exactly treat Greeks and Germans as the protagonist of this game. But I think there are some real dangers in treating these categories as those that describe the agents of mutual recognition. German citizens who deploy stereotypes about Greeks are not the spokespersons of a German people. They are powerful agents who may have an agenda of their own. I've just mentioned two possible examples of that in the political field, in the journalistic field. And of course, we need to be always thinking, and I don't say that the authors are not thinking in these terms, but sometimes it slips from view. We always need to be thinking who gets to articulate a German perspective, and what about all those fellow Germans who may re reject this representative claim and say, not in my name. So if we're to get to grips with the power struggles of the Euro crisis, I think surely at some point we have to not just nuance our stereotypes, but radically question these territorial categories altogether. It seems to me the most encouraging part of the book, and I'm going to finish on, on this theme, is exactly the extent to which in the empirical material that the authors dig up, many speakers aren't interested in characterizing Greeks or Germans for better or for worse but focus instead on particular agents, the government of Germany, the billionaire class of Greece, political parties of each, the markets, without assuming that they're somehow aspects of a national whole. In other words, they refuse to see countries as collective unities, but instead treat them as environments within which power relations unfold. The question then becomes not what people's views of Germans are, but whether they can find allies in Germany or not a country as an arena rather than a country as an actor. And I think this would be something that would be interesting to study much more of and to thematize considerably further. You might say the, the strategies for denationalizing 
political discourse, for taking these kind of categories out of the discussion. Probably the turn to ideology, we've heard about neoliberalism and cognates universal categories like democracy, shared adversaries like the markets. There's a nice quotation somewhere where even Bill Saitong is talking about how politics has been blackmailed by bankers and financial markets once again. So here, even in the least likely place, perhaps, you see exactly a denationalizing of the terms of discussion. And it seems to me that perhaps this is exactly the most positive legacy of the crisis, if one dares to be optimistic in, in some sense. It's the emergence of political movements that are actually rather less about mutual recognition between peoples, between agents that might call themselves and be called Greeks and Germans, but perhaps exactly an effort to transcend the national frame. Somewhere in the book is the following sentence, many on both sides shared the view that the real power struggle was not Germany versus Greece, but states versus markets. I think this is the more encouraging story in the book. Those who reject the very terms of a Greco-German affair rather than those who nuance their stereotypes and recognize the diversity that they hide. I'll stop there. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Calypso, could you very briefly, if, I, if you may, because you have a chance later to answer other questions, uh, respond to this, this thing that the whole narrative or the way you frame the, 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 the issue in the book uh, is too much psychologizing the issue. Then could you explain with your method that, could you answer that existential question, can the core live with the periphery and vice versa? And then Jonathan's uh, arguments is the, is the stereotype, the way you take these stereotypes seriously, not playing the game of those who use them strategically. If you perhaps could, could respond to these three questions. If you. Well, thank you, Walter. And, 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 and thank you also for introducing our two wonderful discussants who, to whom we are very, very grateful for reading the book in such, with such um, passion uh, as Englishmen, because I think in this place, <laughs> uh, and we are against any ascription, that's part of the message of the book, you know, but it is so important indeed for us to revisit all of these conflicts and intense uh, debates around Brexit, around the Euro crisis, um, in terms that can subvert the temptation to, of ascription of the other. And of course, in Brexit, we see this all the time, this ascription, irony, rejection of what you think I am, and all of that. So we, we do hope that the book, um, first of all, you know, is not about a past story, because the Greco-German affair is an ongoing thing, even if the intensity has passed, but also that it speaks to all the crisscrossing bilateral and multi-level relationships in Europe and indeed maybe more broadly. I do want to say also, Vatra, if you uh, allow me to say that, um, you know, in this book, I think my, my first and greatest contribution was to uh, introduce Claudia and Kira, who uh, had the respective German and Greek, you know, language and knowledge and who did such amazing, really detailed, really work a journey inside these media and, uh, and languages and discourses. And it's been fantastic to, 
you know, ride their wave and be part of, of, of this team which was really many years in the making. So it was a journey for us, and we very much hope to, to share it. Um, and, and indeed, so let me just simply very quickly then, yes, address, first of all, um, the, the question that, uh, uh, Kevin, you ask, well, you know, what's at stake here? Does it really matter? You know, isn't there some really bigger underlying uh, question? You know, and at the end of the day, you know, how do you explain? So, of course, we can't do everything, but part of what we're, we're interested in is indeed to, uh, to say, well, there are cycles. Um, if you have power relations, if, of course this whole story is about asymmetric interdependence. The Greeks need the German more than the other, but they're, they're caught up together. And of course they need, politicians need to legitimate their action. But what, is, what we're interested in is how porous the na narrative boundaries are. That yes, you need to speak to your own public, but there are all sorts of boomerang effects. Your public looks at how you're perceived on the other side. Your press picks it up. And so you, can't, you have to negotiate these boundaries. You can't go too far. Um, and of course, it also becomes an internal weapon. So um, what the other side, so in Greece, you had, um, um, all of the modernizers who, of course, would use the German press, but with irony. So we can't go on insulting you and then ask for your money. You know, you can see this kind of quote all the time. And so partly it's the interaction between the underlines and the, and the, and the story. Um, but of course, you need to then, what we are trying to do, and I think you picked it up very, uh, both of you very well, is that it's not just the caricature of the other. It's you start with the tension we each have of ourselves. We, we love ourselves, we hate ourselves. All of us do as individuals. And peoples and groups and countries do that. So then the other is a mirror. And each side has this repressed esteem for the other and a repulsion. And how do you negotiate this? So the Greeks, you know, see, they, they admire these Germans who can be in control because we've lost control in Greece all these years. Wow, but then the Germans fear that the, the Greek story says something about who they are and who are they not, easygoing and charming, etc., cetera, uh, or, or generous enough in the eyes of the other. And, and how are they gonna negotiate this with themselves? Um, so we, we wanna ask you know, how in the underlying structural stories that are hardcore economic interests an interest in keeping the Eurozone alive and everything we're all very familiar with, the stories and the narratives and the justification bolster or deflate the arguments. So um, there, are, there is you know, a magnifying of explanation, but we're certainly not trying to say we are constructivists, we believe that ideas lead the way. They're a mirror, they're a reflection. And, and so I want to also bounce off on, on Jonathan's point then that, uh, and thank you for outlining these, this many, these different ways in which stereotypes and caricatures um, um, evolve. Because um, of course, you know, you could say, and many of you haven't read the book yet, we're contesting stereotypes 
sound, it's a bit naive. We all contest. That's why we're students and academics. You know, we, we don't believe in stereotypes, do you? Uh, and indeed, the Greeks are not that lazy. Look at how hard they work until midnight, you know, and the Germans are generous at the end of the day. Um, but we are interested in when the tit-for-tat of stereotypes becomes broken, subversive. So there's a kind of, of cycles where you see people um, who indeed are tortured. You know, the Greeks are tortured about a, a past that is indeed about victimhood and not, not being able to you know, define your destiny and the Germans we know. Um, so peoples with big ships on their shoulders and that leads to self-righteousness. Where it breaks is when irony, irony intervenes in the self-righteousness. Thanks to language that you can borrow on the other side and it helps you take this distance. And so, Kevin, you were talking about pragmatism. Um, so I think the Greeks sometimes, yes, they do borrow a kind of ironic pragmatism. Um, and, you know, um, I love the, the, one of the quotes which talks about that we, the Greeks, were like the joke of the desperate husband who threatens his wife that he's going to castrate himself. So, you know, and they, that's the self-criticism. They say, this is how the Germans see us, as self-defeating. But they're using that to say something internally. So, indeed, just to echo what you both said, that the, the subversion is what is interested. Now, why, Kevin, then you and both of you pick up on our frame, the mutual recognition frame, and you, are, you say, well, how could you be against mutual, re and just to finish on mutual recognition, the point is not so much to be for or against, it's to note, uh, indeed with, with Jonathan, that you know, the EU, you can read the European journey as, a journey as an attempt to move beyond the denials of mutual recognition that are the history of, of Europe for centuries and after World War II, when even at the end of the war, neighbors killed each other. These were all micro instances of denying the other. And Europe is a wonderful attempt, if, if a failed attempt in many respects, to overcome this, um, th these denials. And the story of why the emphasis is important, because when these days, with all the crisis, we, we think, well, what should be done? There's always this vertical gaze. If only Brussels could be better. If only the iron cage and the bubble could open up, if there would be participation. And it's and we would do all these things in Brussels. And we are trying to say the gaze, the optimistic gaze or the gaze for hope is looking at how people look at each other, how subgroups reach out inside the other side and find allies and co-conspirators inside the polity of the other side. It's these horizontal relationships that really matter in Europe. These attempts to understand the angst and the hopes on the other side. It's it's an emphasis that we want to provide rather than an alternative. And indeed an emphasis, Jonathan, that tries to not reify you know, the sides in question, but say there are individuals, there are groups, and what can help them in, in um, overcoming you know, the, um, the othering of all the others in Europe. Thank you very much, Calypso. Without further ado, I'm sure you're very impressed with my time management. As a, <laughs> so we take now <laughs> Q&A. Who has questions, comments? Sure, please. In the front.
question that um, I have is summarized in um, saying, well, can the center hold? And it'd be interesting to get the views of the panel on the extent to which the opposing camps in this particular contretemps have been reconciled enough for one to be confident that it won't re-explode if not in the context of a Greek environment, but maybe of another you know, similarly distinctive economic disparity from another, another country. Thank you. The lady there with the glasses. Just wait for the microphone for a moment, please. Thank you very much. Um, obviously, the book takes a very contemporary focus. I was just wondering if you could maybe say a little more about the specific historical nature of the Greco-German relationship, which might have played into these discourses, which you've been analysing. Could you speak uh, up a little bit? Oh, sorry. Um, so, firstly... Uh, the German cultural philhellenism, which goes back to uh, Winkelmann um, and the identification with ancient Greece, um, and then also the political entanglements with, between uh, Greece and Germany going back to the War of Independence and how those play into the discourses you've been analysing. Thank you. Another one? Yes, please, sir. Thank you very much. Um, sorry for the English. I'm Greek and German, so I'm looking forward to the book. Um, <laughs> piecing, um, finding my inner peace. I have, I have three questions. Um, first of all, the uh, point of Kevin that liberalism or liberal means something different in German and in Greek um, is very important, and I would like to have your views on other terms as well, because having been part of Greek or German relations for the past five years, not only liberalism, but also Europe, social policy, political economy, things like markets as well have different meanings and a different frame for, the, for the both parts of the dialogue. Uh, the second thing is what we have seen in both countries is that Greece and Germany have been used in a domestic power struggle for internal aims and not for the aim of mutual recognition. Um, and um, I, I'd like to link that also with the horizontal relations that were mentioned at the end because some of the actors in, in Germany or in Greece as well try to have horizontal alliances with partners on the other side for their internal political struggle. And how do you frame that? And that brings me to the last point, power. It is an imbalanced relationship. So the, the metaphor of a game with clear rules for both sides or a marriage is a little bit difficult. And for my reading, and I'm a little bit more uh, pessimistic here, didn't the Greco-German affair show us how shallow the mutual recognition in Europe is and how thin the layer of trust between Europeans is when it comes to difficult questions like budget, like money in Germany, or to be a little bit more contemporary, like um, in the migration issue? So what does that mean for a future crisis um, in, in Europe? And uh, just to give you a small impression on that, the echo on the very recent Ita Italian elections in Germany reminded me a lot of, a, of comments about Greece in the past. Thank you. Thank you very much. So let's take them. Kira, would you like pick one of these questions? 
Sure, thank you very much. Um, I'd like to have to make two short comments about two of them, if that's okay. okay. So I'd like to make a short comment about the first one. So can <coughs> the center hold? And that also uh, that relates to Kevin's commentary about the, the, the constituency for reform in Greece, which is small. And I wanted to comment on this that, okay, so first of all, it's, it's very true that society came at breaking point in Greece during those years. I mean, not, not only because of the animosity between Greeks and other Europeans, but for, because of the animosity between, within, within Greece, between groups in Greece, between people who were pro-reform and people who said that you know, being pro-reform is tantamount to being you know, pro-German, being a traitor. So I, I suppose it's hard, okay, it's, it's hard to say, you know, give a definite answer as to whether there will be a, a, a breakdown of relations between the two sides. I think so far we, ha we, we came very close to it, but it didn't happen so far in Greece. But I think, nevertheless, keeping in mind the context that Kevin has given and that we try to allude to in the book, which is about the history of the pro-reform constituency, its, pos its minority position within Greece, and also the context of the political system in Greece, which makes reform quite difficult, even if there is a important social push towards reform, just due to the institutional structure. I think those things can help to show us in a much more powerful way what was at stake with the reform programs in Greece, and that this, this is not something that can be easily understood through mere reference to economic interests um, and the aims of economic programs, different economic policies. So I think part of the thing we try to do in the book is to try to show the significance of what was at stake during the crisis exactly through a reference to this context, even if it doesn't amount to full causal analysis, but it, it amounts to an exposition, let's say, and allusion at times. So, and then the second thing I wanted to say has to, touches upon the, that question about the different meanings of liberalism. And again, I wanted, I th what struck me in the excellent comments of Kevin and Jonathan is that they came, they seem to approach the issue from two opposing sides. So Kevin talked about irreconcilable frames and whether ultimately we can reconcile the core with the periphery. And then Jonathan kind of urged us to supersede national categories. And I think, you know, coming to this topic from those two different sides kind of show, 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 shows a bit what we try to do in the book, which is to say that national categories remain very important reference points in Europe. And that assuming that this is, or trying to, to say that this will change from one day to the next, is perhaps unrealistic and even undesirable. However, at the same time, what we try to show is that discourses that come from the two countries supersede national boundaries and have many common elements. And so perhaps I would, I would say that historically, the word liberal can mean two, two different things in the two different countries, but I don't think that the discussion stays at those boundaries. I think there are many people in Greece who are perfectly able to converse with many people in Germany and embracing a very similar meaning of, meaning of liberalism. And for us, this is a bit where the hope for having a common discourse lies, I suppose. Claudia, would you like to comment on one yes. um, I think I'll, I'll start with, um, with your point about the, uh, this being really a power game and, the, and, and, and a very asymmetrical or imbalanced power game. Um, if you think of football, you could argue that the, the the relationship is asymmetrical and kind of unbalanced as well with one nation perhaps being a bit better on, over the long term in football than the other, um, although you may obviously disagree with that. Um, I think also the, the, your point about the, the, the veneer of mutual recognition being very, very thin 
um, is, is certainly one um, that, um, that I, I, I would endorse on a certain level. And mainly the book really is about denials of recognition and, and, and these offenses that we, we showed in, in the pictures. But it, the, also, we, we, we had these kind of um, um, reversals of stereotypes um, that we describe. And I think um, in reversing those stereotypes, I think the, the, that worked even more importantly at the level of how the, the, the um, collectives at, in, in question saw themselves um, and, and more than the other. And in, in that way, it, it was mainly, it was perhaps not kind of distracting from something important, but creating possibilities for change in the longer term. And, and that maybe relates um, to Kevin's point about um, our narratives being the symptom of a cause. I think they also have some causal effects, or although we wouldn't probably use this um, language of, of cause and effect, but they probably created the, the, the conditions for, for change to occur later on. For instance, with the new German government possibly, quite possibly, um, um, changing tack quite radically when it comes to, to funding um, the, the, the Eurozone. Um, and I think all, all these kind of plays on irony and, and who we are um, as Germans, as Germans who may have been perpetrated, as, as Germans who identify with other things, um, identify with certain classes, um, um, made this possible and, and prepared um, a, a new finance minister who says that um, transfer union is just an um, ideological battle term that um, he just refused to, to use. Um, the point about history, yeah. we have all these fascinating quotes where basically the Germans are saying, you know, we're actually more Greek than you if you think about ancient Greek, you know, you are betraying our Greece, the one we loved, you know, 100 years ago that when we discovered ancient Greece. So, you know, how could you do this? And it's almost, you know, an affront to us to misbehave in that way. Um, so that's one bit of it. But at the same time, what you also see and what we also know in this story is that the Germans have to engage into discovering very often the perception of both the war and the civil war in Greece, which is not taught in German schools. And it's something, you know, you talk to my German students, they, they don't really know. They, they learn the French, maybe the Polish side, but the Southern, what happened in the South, it's just not known in German culture. So having to engage with this, both the long-term and the, the kind of post-war histories is one of those, you know, fascinating bit of the story. Um, the, the point about Italy, you, you, in your question you alluded to Italy, and of course this is very topical, and this is back to Vatro picking up the question of, that is with us today, can the center live with the periphery? And that's what the Five Star Movement you know, asks, that's what we need to ask again and again. And of course, you know, there's technical answers to this, but to what the Greek-German story, you know, the, the, the Yes, it's a story about different frames, about liberalism, but it's also a story about whether, who is to blame? Is it the structure of the Euro construct, the design? That's, that's the dominant Greek story. Or is it the characteristics of countries that are just simply not capable of living with this great currency? 
you're, you're to blame as a country. You have flaws. You, you can't control your budget, etc. So you, there's the structural story and the, the, the specific blame story. And, and, they inter and of course, they're there. What can you do? But what you see is, is to ask, well, is this Eurozone designed as it is, you know, does it allow the Italian characteristic, the Greek characteristic, to be soluble in it, to, to live in it, to, to be countries that uh, deal with their issues by devaluation or in various ways? Can they, can they be the kind of countries they are, the social, economic, cultural countries they are in this Eurozone? This is what this debate you know, raises. And of course, then you, you have policy answers to this. Well, you need to adapt domestic institutions, but maybe you need to adapt the Eurozone itself and, and, it, and the design itself. And in this conversation, you know, this, we're going to see it again with Italy. No question about it. I think we, we all want to agree on this. Um, and finally, I just want to pick up the point about trust. Uh, which Claudia also reacted to because, you know, we all love to talk about Europe is about trust and what broke down with between Greek and Germany is about trust. But we all know in our lives and in, you know, there's no such thing as blind trust. You just accept what, no. Trust is about opening the black box of the other and the more I know about the other, the more I can engage. So, it's, and, and if that's the case, then, you know, European politics um, will have to be about these horizontal connections that in, in what we see in, in the conversation between or the, the, the fight and the conflict is that, oh, we recognize that workers in Germany might think the same way as you know, the, the workers in Greece or investors in each side. There are crisscrossing alliances and maybe then it's not country against country. And so maybe our own title, indeed, I agree, is, might be a misnomer. And the hope for Europe is indeed that there might be much more fluid politics in that sense. Who else? If there's nobody, then I would like to put myself in your next uh, on the list. Could I respond? Now? Yeah. Whenever you wish. Then, then go ahead. Yeah. Then we do a last round. Okay, uh, we need a last round, so let me very, be very quick. On, I very much appreciated the points uh, raised on this aspect of, of trust. Before the crisis began, I, I think in the spring of 2008, in one of the opinion polls conducted by the European Commission, Eurobarometer, they asked a question which has been repeated on a number of occasions, asking voters across Europe what words, what descriptions they would attach to the European Union? What does the European Union mean to you? And it was an open survey question. Strikingly, before the crisis, words like trust, solidarity, tolerance uh, received no more than one in eight of the voters uh, sampled. In other words, after whatever it is, five, six, seven decades of building Europe, the uh, point about uh, trust and solidarity and mutual recognition was actually remarkably slow, uh, re remarkably low pre-crisis. Pre uh, I'm tempted to say that in terms of the analogy of football at the moment, football is a pretty good metaphor 
uh, for different cultural stereotypes. If we think in terms of the problems of Greek football at the moment, for example, uh, then surely this would confirm every negative image uh, that Germany uh, might, uh, might have. Um, can they be, after all of this trauma, does the drama finish with, with the two lovers reconciled? Is there more recognition than, than before? Does the, uh, are they converging? Uh, I'd have thought on that. It depends very much in terms of shifts of policy towards uh, burden sharing in Germany. Uh, perhaps there's another romantic entanglement we should be focusing on, and it's Angler and uh, Macron. Thank you. Um, I was thinking a little bit about this mutual recognition, why you chose that as the metaphor how integration can happen at the citizen's level, I think. This is uh, what you do. I mean, interestingly, uh, Kevin seems to associate all the time with it lovers and disappointed uh, you know, couples. Uh, while in the original, it's of course the master and the servant, right? In Hegel, it's that the servant is in that asymmetric position to have to recognize the master, but by doing it becomes a much more re reflexive person and actually becomes the master in, in real terms. So it's a liberating action. We have this other, you know, Calypso's work was about mutual recognition, which is a kind of depoliticized way of how we could integrate a single market um, in, in the sense of that, you know, what's legally produced in one country must be recognized as being legally, to be legally sold in another member state. Both connotations, first of all, the first one you do not fully exploit. The second one is probably exactly the opposite of what you want to say because it's not about depoliticization, it's about the intense politicization of, of, of what I would say conflict. And so I was wondering why you did not, why you chose this kind of, of conceptualization when I would say you could have what is underlying all of this and stereotypes I think are part of it is conflict. And you know, Durkheim told us conflict is what integrates us. We know now so much about the uh, Greek pension system in Germany and the Greeks think back about what has been paid or not paid in the uh, uh, repatriate, uh, um, in, in terms of reparations by Greece and they have actually a point. <laughs> there was not enough paid and there were uh, not a treaty made uh, when unification came in Germany. So. It integrates us because we suddenly look very closely at that other side that we oppose. And then in that, the, the, hopefully, the hopeful uh, lookout would be mutual recognition in that we really recognize that it's not uh, along the lines of, of nationalities but alongside of class, uh, actors, whatever. So why this way of, of framing it when in a social science, science book? Um, thank you very much for the presentation and the opinions that you have offered uh, so far. What I would like to ask is that if we could have avoided the escalation of the relationships and the intensification of the conflict between uh, nations like uh, Greece and Germany in this example or other nations by the European Union evolving into a political union, would this resolve the issue or would it still persist? as it is fundamental in our cultures and the way that we interact with each other. 
Thank you. Yes, here in the back. Last, I'm afraid. Thank you, Nasser Kalaoun. Um, the question is about the future of economics. Is there a light at the uh, end of tunnel that in this uh, current uh, model that uh, Greece will jump back after false starts, few false starts in the past, to say everything's been sorted out and we have the third, uh, you know, package. Um, I read many economists to say it's a hopeless case. And this model for Greece to jump back is being put, you know, on standby. What do you think? To have the romance to restart it again. Because every people who disagree, they, they have to put some accounts, you know, again. So what do you think? Does the account, the economics help to restart the romance? Thank you. Bit hard to answer that question, but you know you may try. So, Calypso, can we start with you and go in the opposite direction? Ah, okay. Uh, uh, you know, did, there are no magic bullets for Europe, and I think part of the debate these days is, is too too easily tries to find a solution, and then we put magic labels on it. Political Europe is one of those magic labels. What does it really mean? Sometimes it means having a foreign policy, you know, asserting ourselves in this Hobbesian world, we are one Europe. That's sometimes what it means, political Europe. And then you can say, well, yeah, na nation building. So if you think of Europe as nation building, it's about designating another, the rest of the world, and, uh, and then unifying against that other. And in that sense, you could say, yeah, maybe in doing that, then we'll forget our little squabbles because we'll have that other, the Muslims or the China or the US or whatever. I personally have always fought against this idea, this way of thinking about building Europe. Um, it would be sad that we would so lack an imagination to reproduce, to be mimetic, just like the nation was built against its neighbor. You know, that's what we would do for Europe. The other way in which you know, political union is used is to say, um, you know, we should have real debates uh, in the European Parliament or in the Council. There should be left versus rights, and people should see this, these, these debates in that way. And of course, this would be, uh, uh, in a way, it would be nice. Europe needs more politics, but that's indeed what happens between countries and inside countries. It, it's reproduced at all these levels. We have, and indeed, if you see that, we. You can see we already have a political union. Every, if politics is about distributing scarce resources among human beings trying to live together in small spaces, you know, that's what we do. And so, Vatro, that leads me to your question about you know, mutual recognition. Isn't it always about power and the slave? And yes, politics is always about somebody trying to get an upper hand and Recognition is a theory that is not about equality. It's always about um, contestation and struggles for recognition. Societies are built through struggles. You deny what I want, who I am, what I'm trying to achieve, and I want to get it. I might be a trade union, I might be a, an oppressed minority, I might be the new generation that wants to be heard by the elders. Everybody struggles to be recognized by the other. And that, that's what you know. the story of Europe is also I would even go so far as to say, 
even the technical idea that we recognize each other's laws and regulation, whether it's in the single market or the arrest warrant, that's all technocratic and technical. But underlying this is always some sort of political contestation, huge disagreement about whether I trust your laws, whether they're as good as mine, whether I can accept to live with your laws. These are always political at the end of the day. There's always asymmetric power. And we can look at this, these struggles for recognition in different places. And that's, we chose to look at one part of the story in that way. Okay. Um, I'm intrigued by your question about conflict and whether that would have been a better lens to look at, at this relationship and, and, and kind of how we, relationships in the EU in general. Um, I think, um, that really the book is about conflict and that um, these denials of recognitions that we looked at, um, and they happened not only in, in, in words and, and symbols and narratives, but also in deeds and the, the backlash against them and the kind of struggles for recognition that we had in response to these denials um, are very much kind of in, in response to that and, 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 and told us about the, the conflict to begin with. Um, these, so these denials and, and in in, in reaction to them, the um, struggles for a recognition and the, and the outcries against them, they're both a source of conflicts but also a way of, um, or a mechanism in which, which this conflict can, can become, uh, can integrate. So, so if conflict integrates, it, it, it might be through this um, mm -hmm. grappling with um, granting recognition, denying it, asking for it, speaking out, out against that. I think that would be my attempt at an answer to that. The, the marriage metaphor, I think, at best works if, if we're thinking about an arranged marriage between very unequal partners that are kind of forced to be there and just because they have to be in this together, have to engage with each other. And, and again, kind of through looking and, and dealing with each other in, in these ways, manage to somehow come to terms that could be called integration. Kira. And I give Jonathan also a chance. Thank you very much. Um, all right, to address the third question briefly. All right, so we cannot give, I don't think we can give a definitive answer if this or the other model can work. We are not economists. What we can say is what kind of economic recipes people have put their name under, let's say. And I think what we can, what we can say is that in Greece and in Germany, people, many people have put, have invested a huge amount of resources in making, uh, in making European integration work with the two countries inside the Eurozone. And I guess what, what we're trying to, to show is the, kind, the, what, right, the, the kinds of stakes um, that, that, have been, that, that the crisis generates in that regard. But I'm afraid I cannot give a definitive answer. But I would like to also close with a, perhaps a last comment on political union, because perhaps it may have become evident from the discussion that this is an academic exploration, but it's also a political essay. So we, we are very involved in the, in, in the issue of making European democracy work. And ultimately, one of the aims of the book is to perhaps make a contribution to, to that regard. And I'd like to say that what attracted me to Calypso's work a few years ago was this idea, which is my reading of her work, 
that before proceeding with radical integration towards, I don't know, whatever political union means, usually it means a radical leap forward in terms of ceding sovereignty. Well, before doing that, you need to think about building a European public opinion by promoting those kinds of horizontal links between the countries. And I think if there are policy implications coming out of this discussion, this is, first of all, in finding ways to promote those horizontal links, and second of all, for politicians and academics alike, to think of the implications of what we say in terms of fostering this kind of mutual trust that is built through horizontal links and is not blind, but is based on knowledge of what is happening on the other side. Thanks. Just a, a word on, on conflict, perhaps. I mean, it seems to me what always matters with conflict is the, in what terms does it come to be denominated. Um, and one way of thinking about this image that we have behind us of a statue uh, showing its finger is, uh, I guess, a kind of the culture wars coming to Europe. Conflict as about a clash of cultures, value systems, moralities. And again, although we often think of any such clash in Europe as being to do with the way the EU is structured, coming back to someone's point about an institutional system that uh, ontologizes uh, nations as the units of of the game. Another way of perhaps thinking about what's going on here is, is the arrival of a kind of a, a conflict denominated in cultural terms in Europe. We often associate it with the US, but here it is uh, suddenly in Europe. Perhaps we also see it in Brexit. I mean, this kind of making of a, of a division between Remainers and Leavers is, uh, I think, another front in a kind of culture war that is taking uh, place in, in Europe at the moment. And if one asks, well, why does this happen? Why this type of denomination of conflict in cultural terms? Well, I guess uh, one of the uh, obvious standard lines of reply would be there's something to do with the difficulties in which a market society finds itself, that many people have an interest in making sure that the major conflicts are denominated in cultural terms, and that political divides don't take the, the form of disagreements about, uh, about the economy. Um, and again, as I say, certain institutional forms can encourage certain kinds of denomination of, uh, of conflict in one terms or, or another. So conflict, yes, but a certain kind of conflict. And I think uh, one has to be careful in playing that game and contesting images of uh, cultural stereotypes because, to my mind, the, the proper goal is to exit that language rather than to, to nuance it. You see that this uh, small book uh, raises a lot of very fundamental questions that we should all be interested in as, as Europeans. I think the European Institute of UCL, the European Institute here at LSE, and the uh, uh, Hellenic Observatory for sponsoring this this evening, and uh, thank the panel for a wonderful discussion. Thank you.